Good to be here with you all. Uh, my name is Kyle, uh, my wife Stephanie, and my parents-in-law, Dan and Sherry Brink, are here with, with us all the way from Southern California. We could not be happier to be here with you this morning. Uh, it's been a while since, since I've been here to preach. It's got to have been like maybe four and a half years. We've been, Oakland, we've been in Oakland now six. Uh, and so maybe a lot of you feel like you don't, you don't know us all that well. And you might feel like we don't know you all that well. But here's what I know about you. I know that you care deeply for the poor. I know that you care deeply for reconciliation in God's world. I know that you care deeply for the gospel to get out into communities where it's struggling to get out and that you care deeply about missions because you guys have been supporting us so faithfully for six years now. And it's remarkable because all it took was a couple of conversations of getting to know each other. Seriously, you have no idea how much I've been looking forward to just spending a little bit of time with you here because your church has been a constant companion of ours since the very beginning, since before we started. So we are so, so grateful for you. Know that that everything that you saw in that video, everything that you hear about who we are as a church is in part your doing as well. And so thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, Tapestry Church this morning. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it through the context of the sermon because basically what I'm going to be preaching about is the deep sort of why we're doing what we're doing. We... Uh, we started Tapestry Church about a year ago, and as you saw in the video, and as you maybe know from some of the updates, that we, we are a church that is a merger of a church plant that you were supporting before Tapestry Church existed, that we planted, Stephanie and I planted in downtown Oakland. Our church that we had planted, it was, started with seven people in our apartment, and we ended up moving into a hotel in downtown Oakland. We always had a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-economic, multi-generational vision for the church, but what ended up happening was because of who we are and a variety of factors we can't control, we ended up being uh, about 80% white, almost 100% like young singles church of people who had recently moved to Oakland. And we loved that little church. We loved Oakland Communion, but that was not the vision that God had given us or our group as we had met together in prayer planning to plant this church for the church in Oakland because that's not what Oakland looks like. Oakland is a community that's about a quarter black, a quarter white, a quarter Latino, about 15% Asian, and the rest uh, Native American, uh, multi, uh, multicultural, biracial people. Uh, it's, it's a community that is incredibly diverse, and we wanted to plant a church where every single person in our community could be invited, and not just invited, but come in and, and feel immediately like, okay, the, these are my people. I could be here. I could be, I could be okay here. There are people who know what life is like for me. And so as we, as I, when I met Pastor Bernard, who you saw in the video, I came to find out that he had the exact same vision for the church, and he had planted a church just a little bit before ours that was a multi-generational, predominantly black church full of people who grew up in Oakland. We realized, well, if we have the same vision for a church full of people who are radically different from one another in a city where people are radically different from one another, why don't we just get it together? 
and partner together. And that's, that's what we did. So that's what you saw in the video. The, some of that uh, footage is from our launch service, which was on June 3rd, a year ago. And uh, it's been a wild ride ever since. Uh, we've learned a lot in the process, and we're still learning a lot in the process, and really appreciate your support on this journey. Uh, this morning, before I get going in in the sermon, um, probably a lot of us have already heard about, and we just prayed for the people in El Paso and Dayton. Uh, and I would be remiss if I didn't make mention of it this morning because it's such an incredibly difficult and tragic thing in the life of our country. And because while we don't know yet at least as of 9.45 this morning, what any of the motives were behind the Dayton shooting. We do know what some of the motives were, or at least preliminary reports about what some of the motives probably were behind the El Paso shooting. And it's important for the church to name those motives. Why is it important? In, in, our, in our denomination, we have this statement called the contemporary testimony. It's, uh, it's a statement titled, Our World Belongs to God. Probably some of you have read it or maybe even studied it. There's a, there's a, passage, there's a passage that goes like this in speaking about and, and, and speaking on the foundations of our faith in Genesis chapters 1 and, 1 and 2. It says this, it says, Together, male and female, single and married, young and old, every hue and variety of humanity, we are called to represent God, for the Lord made us all. Life is God's gift to us, and we are called to foster the well-being of all the living, protecting from harm the unborn and the weak, the poor and the vulnerable. Our contemporary testimony calls out as non-Christian and against God's expressed description of who we are. Ideologies like white supremacy and white nationalism that would cause people to destroy or demean or dehumanize other people's lives and any other ideologies that would do the same. And it's important for us in the church to call that out where we see it, to lament how I've participated in that from time to time. And, and, to re- and to repent, turn around, and seek a different direction. And because I, know, because I know you all from your support of us, I know that that's your heart too. And it's important we as a community hold that together. But there's another part that comes right after that in the contemporary testimony because events like this also stir up a lot of fear in us. They stir up a lot of fear. And the next section says, even now, as history unfolds, In ways we know only in part, we are assured that God is with us in our world, holding all things in tender embrace and bending them to his purpose. The confidence that the Lord is faithful gives meaning to our days, hope to our years, that the future is secure, for our world belongs to God. As we hear from God's word this morning, may we sit in that hope that, God, that the God who made us all and loves us all holds this whole world in his hands. Amen?
Okay, so you're going to have to help me out. Because after I pray here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the scripture passage for today, and then I'm going to start to preach. And the church that, that I pastor now, is it's like 60% black. So I'm used to a fair amount of response in churches. And while I know like from experience and living in West Michigan for four years, that might not totally be like your emo- I don't know. I've, it's been a while since I preached here. But like if you feel something rising up in you, if you feel like saying something or like, like responding in some kind of way, please, I won't feel bad about it. Trust me. I won't feel like you're, like you're interrupting me or something like that. It'll really help me. It'll give me some energy, okay? Okay, all right, good. I was hoping that wasn't, whew, almost, almost missed the opportunity there. All right, let me, let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word that we can always trust it. Thank you for your word that it reads us even more than we read it. And thank you for your word that ultimately it's a word about you, a word about how we relate to you, and a, world, a word about how much you love and care for and are committed to us. We thank you for this word, God, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear it this morning. Help me to say what you want me to say, nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Got our, got our first response. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're going to read this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And while you're opening your Bibles to page 947, if you're using a Bible from the back, I'm going to try and turn this thing back on one more time and let's see if we can give it a go, all right? Testing. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. All right, if you got it, say amen. If you don't, say hold up. All right, we're there. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. 
and in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to, be, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I told you that what I'm going to be preaching about this morning is the deep why of Tapestry Church, why we merged our church with another church so radically different from us to create something different and, and new. And the deep why is this. The church is divided. The church is divided. And in the United States, among other things that it's divided by, the church is predominantly divided by race. I would hazard to guess that it's actually more common for someone these days to, to, to move to a new city and to join another church that is in a different denomination than it is for them to join a church that is primarily of a different race in their own denomination. My story is pretty similar. I grew up in a church that was 99% white in Presbyterian. And then I went to college, and I joined a church that was 99% white and Presbyterian, but then I wanted a church that was closer, so I joined another church that was 99% white and non-denominational. And then uh, after a couple of years, we didn't feel like we could really connect in that place, and so I joined an another church that was 99% white and Assemblies of God. And all these churches were really wonderful churches to be a part of. We, we thoroughly enjoyed our time there, loved the people, we learned a lot, uh, but you see how it was a lot easier for us, and I don't know if this is your story or not, but it was a lot easier for me to join a church that was predominantly my, my culture and ethnicity than it was to, to join, it was, it was easier for me to do that than it was for me to join a church that shared my, my theology in a different culture, different race, different ethnicity. And my story is not dissimilar from the story of the majority of Americans in our world today. Most American Protestants go to a church that is predominantly their own ethnic group, regardless of what ethnic group they're a part of. That's the majority of Americans. And it makes sense when 86% of all Protestant churches have one predominant ethnic group. That, that is the, the most recent statistic that I can find. And if you're thinking, well, hey, but listen, that's probably to do a lot more with like geographical factors, like the way that our communities are, are carved up. And, you know, if the communities are predominantly one ethnic group over here and another over here, then of course churches are going to be like that. And to some degree, that's true. There's a whole history of, 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 of redlining and, and, and breaking up communities based on race uh, that, that has impacted the church and our demographics. But Oh, I hate even to say this, but sadly, it's even worse in the church. The average congregation in 1998 was eight times less diverse than its neighborhood. And in 2012, four times less diverse than its neighborhood. And beyond that, one of the biggest problems is if we're honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, most of us, or not most of us, that's not true, many of us, though, don't really care that much 
And now I'm not just speaking to you, Ivan Rest Church, I'm speaking to the American context in general because I don't know each of you individually, but the truth is statistically that many of us don't even care that that's true. 67% of people in churches in North America, which again, remember they're predominantly one ethnic group, 67%, two-thirds of American churchgoers say that their church has done plenty to become racially diverse. And, 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 and less than half think that their church should be more diverse. Less than half. And yet, 90% of pastors, when polled, think that it's a direct and important implication of the gospel. Something is wrong in the American church. Our, our church is divided. And whether we realize it or not, it's harming our witness. As a church planter, that's one of the things I care most about in the world, that, that, the, that the gospel of Jesus would be heard by people who haven't heard it or who haven't heard it in just the right way or at just the right time, and they would receive it into their life, and their life would be transformed by hearing about the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And whether we realize it or not, our divisions are actually harming our witness to that effect. Because when we tell people... Jesus has broken down the barriers between us and God and and therefore between us and each other. Jesus has made us children of God, adopted sons and daughters of God, so that we are all children of one Father, which means we are family. We are united in Christ. And then they look at, at our churches around the country, and they say, are you? Are we? They, see, they, they, they hear we are one and they see we are many. They hear we are united by Jesus, by Christ, and they see we are divided by culture. The church in the United States is divided and, and it's harming our witness. So we just need to get back to those early church days, right? When everything was good. There were no divisions in the church, right? No. (laughs) No, the church, the early church was just as divided as we are. This is the... This is one of the great mysteries of of the existence of the church, that God has continued to use the church from its early days till now, despite the many ways that we have gone gone away from his mission and his intention for us to continue to deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. But the church in, 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 in Paul's day was just as divided as we are. That's why he says in chapter 2, verse 11, Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth were called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. There there was an ethnic segregation. There was an ethnic sense even of superiority in the early church where some Christians who were ethnically Jewish considered themselves superior to those who were ethnically Gentile. And so they created labels to make sure that, that everybody knew who was superior to who, that created and was reinforced by practices distinct to those ethnic groups and their ways of relating to God. The early church was just as divided as we are. 
And you can read it throughout the entire New Testament. If you, if you go back, read, go, go back this fall and read through your New Testament again, looking for where Paul and, and Jesus and the, the, the rest of the apostles call out issues of, of ethnic unity that's needed in the church or ethnic division that actually exists in the church. And you'll see it all over the place. The early church was just as divided as we are, and yet Paul says he has made the two groups one. He has destroyed the barrier. Did you hear, you hear what Paul's saying? He's speaking in past tense. In Greek, actually, it's the aorist tense. It's almost the most extreme form of past you can get. It's like it happened in the past, and it was a completed thing in the past. It's done. Paul says, past tense, he has made the two groups one. And he has destroyed the barrier. And yet, present tense, you are being called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves now the circumcision. How can Paul say this? How, how can Paul say you have been made one when clearly to look at the church of the day, you would say that they're definitely not acting like it. He can say it because Paul has a worldview that understands there is a reality that runs deeper than appearances. Paul has a worldview that understands that our perceptions of the world and our perceptions of the church and our perceptions of each other aren't necessarily the reality. The reality is held in Christ. And when Paul looks at Christ, he sees a Savior who has reconciled his people. People of every ethnicity together into one family. There's a reality that runs deeper than appearances. You know, when, when um, Bernard and I, Pastor Bernard and I, were starting to think about or dream about merging our two churches into one church, we went through this long walk through the Laurel District of Oakland. It was kind of our DTR, you know, like our defining the relationship kind of talk. And, and as we were talking, we, uh, we realized something. We realized that if we were going to do this, well, this is the way that Bernard would put it, he said, he said, when we were walking, he said, if we're going to do this, we've got to be better brothers than we'll ever be pastors. Because there will be so many things that will try to, to put a wedge between us. And if there's a wedge between us, it's going to destroy the church. So we've got to be better brothers than we'll ever be pastors. And from that day forward, we started calling each other brothers and meaning it. With some hilarious effects, actually, uh, in some circumstances. For example, uh, he... Pastor Bernard also has this other saying. He says, when something's real, you don't have to make special language for it. And so he refuses to explain how it is that we came to be brothers. Because we're just brothers. You don't need to make special language for it if it's real. So we're walking through the co-working space where I work most days. And one of my friends says, hey, Kyle, how you doing? I say, hey, how you doing? And it's good to see you. And we start talking. And, and Bernard is with me. And, and she says, oh, uh, who is this? And I say, oh, this is my brother, Bernard. And she kind of looks at us and says, brother, huh? And we both say, yeah. And then she kind of feels like we're having her on or something a little bit, right? So she's look, she looks at us like, like, don't mess with me, right? And she says, you two have the same parents. And without skipping a beat, Bernard says, well, we got the same daddy. Right? 
See, because there's an appearance, and then there's the reality. And, there's, and the reality runs deeper than the appearance. And if it's real, you don't have to make special language for it. So, so Paul says, he has made us one. That is the reality. He has reconciled the two into one. He has destroyed the barrier. Past tense, it's done. That is the deeper reality. But I want to caution us a little bit here for a second, because sometimes when, when we hear words like that, we can kind of use them sometimes to keep us in our comfort zone. We can kind of use them to say, okay, good, right. So it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, it's kind of a bummer that we're not all together, but it's not that big of a deal because the reality is we're all united in Christ. And that would be a complete abuse of what Paul is saying to us in this passage here. He starts the whole passage by calling out explicitly the divisions in the church. And he doesn't pull punches. He uses the words that they use to talk about each other. And then he says the reality. You're one. You're one. It, it, Paul, Paul says that, that, that when appearances don't match the God-given reality because of us, I mean, that, that's the definition of sin. I mean, that's the definition of us setting ourselves up against the purposes of God. God has said the reality is this, and, and we behave in ways that are opposed to that reality. Then that, I mean, that's the definition of not just hostility toward each other, but hostility toward God and his purposes. Far from giving us this reality to assuage our, our, our guilt, say, it's okay, the reality is we're really all one. Paul gives us this reality so that we can say, hey, friends, this is the reality, and it's high time the appearance align with the reality. Paul, Paul wants us to align our appearance with the reality of the church. So how do we do that? How, how do we create peace? We actually, we, we don't. We don't create peace. At least not, that's not what Paul says. Paul says we just recognize him. We don't create peace, we just recognize him. And I, and I said him because peace, according to Paul, is a person. He himself is our peace, Paul says. Jesus himself is is our peace. If there is anything else that we try to make our peace, it's going to get in the way. Why? Because it's, beca it's going to become another law that we create for ourselves and we set each other up against to compare with. And when some of us live up to that law or that standard, we're going to be in. And when some of us don't live up to that law or that standard, we're going to be out. And it doesn't matter whether that law or that standard is defined by, by the way we look by whether or how, how able we are to do various things, by our, by our morality, by what we know or can repeat intellectually, whatever law it is that we set up to create our peace, to create our unity that isn't Jesus is going to turn out to be a law that divides us. 
Paul says he himself is our peace. And that means to have peace, what we need to have is Jesus alone. Christ alone. Peace is not something we have to create. It's someone we have to recognize. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. See who makes the peace? It's the one who is peace. And in one body, to reconcile them both to God. You see how we, we get reconciled to God as one body? We don't all get reconciled to God from our various silos and thus reconciled to each other. He says he's reconciling us to each other and as one body reconciles us to God. That's how important our unity is to him. To recognize, though, does not simply mean to acknowledge intellectually. Like, right, he himself is our peace. Right, we're one. Great. Done, right? No. Right, we have to align the appearance with the reality. We have to live in alignment with the peace that we proclaim. So what's the first step in doing that? Well, it might just be to recognize or to understand, to really get a grip on what is our contemporary dividing wall of hostility. In, in this passage, Paul says that he made the two groups one. He destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And some of us might think that that's like a, a metaphor, right, for the, just the, the things that divide us, right? And, and you can extrapolate from the dividing wall of hostility to all kinds of things that divide us, sure. But Paul is probably talking about a very specific actual dividing wall of hostility. Most scholars think that he chose this very rare, very specific word for dividing wall or partition wall because he was referencing an actual wall in the temple in Jerusalem. See, the temple was set up in such a way that there were cons almost concentric rings, right? And, and certain people could pass through from, from the outer rings to the inner rings and so on. And the closer you got to the middle, the closer you got to God, because God's presence dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And, and the outermost ring was a ring called the Court of the Gentiles. And when you walk into that court, you would see these 80-foot-high pillars, Inscribed on the pillars would be notices saying no Gentiles can pass through here on pain of death. A literal dividing wall of hostility. It doesn't get more hostile than that. You Gentiles cannot get close to God until you become culturally and ethnically and religiously Jewish. That was what the temple notices said. Now, Paul didn't say, hey, Gentiles, Jesus has broken down the walls between you and the Jewish Christians, you know, metaphorically. But we're going to leave the actual walls up in church because it's a really important part of our history and culture, you know? Like, it just reminds us of, like, how... We really, just like the way that we used to worship, and it's really important for us to hold on to that part of our history. No, Paul saw that particular part of the way that 
they used to worship. And so that is not in line with the gospel. And that is a part of our culture that we have to be willing to give up. Because it is literally a dividing wall of hostility between us and our own family. And how could we let it stand? So the question then becomes, what are our contemporary dividing walls of hostility? And, and I can't claim to know that for every context. I can't claim to know that even for, for this church or this context in West Michigan. We've been in Oakland too long. My, my, my whole cultural understanding is like so geared in that direction, it's hard for me to even know. But what I can do is ask the questions, right? What we can do together is ask the questions. What is our dividing walls of host- What are our dividing walls of hostility? Is it the way, is it the way that uh, we choose songs and worship? Is it the way that we preach? Is it the way that we organize our our small groups or choose our leaders? What we value when we choose our leaders? What are our dividing walls of hostility that are setting up a barrier to some of our own brothers and sisters who want to get close to God with us? What are our dividing walls of hostility that are, that are putting up barriers to our brothers and sisters who want to participate fully in the life of the community with us? Or we with them? Doesn't always have to be people coming to us, right? What are those dividing walls of hostility? Sometimes they are tangible things like processes and systems and structures, like an actual wall, right, in, in, in the Jerusalem temple. But for us, it might be a policy. It, it, might be, it might be a way that we organize ourselves or the type of communication we tend to use and only will use because that's how our people do it, right? It could be something really tangible like that. And it can also, those dividing walls can also be erected right down the middle of our hearts. The most devastating consequences, obviously, we heard about yesterday. But there are smaller, more bite-sized consequences every single day for the people who are on the opposite side of those walls. And like Matt prayed for us this morning, we need to continually be asking God to tear down those walls in our hearts. Like he did in Jericho, that those walls would come tumbling down so that we can embrace all of our brothers and sisters into our own lives as family. What are our dividing walls of hostility, seen and unseen? If there's one question that I could leave you with this morning, that's, that's what I would love for us to ponder over the next week, month, year. What are the dividing walls of hostility that Jesus has already destroyed and we just need to get in alignment with? Friends, this is, a, this is a difficult call. It's been tough for the church for 2,000 years. It's still tough for our church. It's sti- I mean, even though we merged two churches together, we are having to figure out, we, we're, we are being confronted with the dividing walls of hostility that have been erected in our own lives and our own hearts and in our church systems and structures and ways of worship all over the place. It's not easy, but it's good. And you want to know what happens when we do the hard work of breaking down the dividing walls of hostility? When we, when we recognize and put ourselves in alignment with the peace who has already come to us? Well, Paul says three things happen. 
we become citizens together. Paul says there are no longer any foreigners or strangers in the church. You know, citizens have rights and access to power that non-citizens do not have in almost every society. And Paul says, whereas in every other society in the world, there are citizens and there are non-citizens. In the church, everyone's a citizen. Doesn't matter your ethnic or racial background. It, doesn't, it does not matter where you come from or what your life experiences have been. When you are in Christ, you are a citizen of God's kingdom, which means you have full rights and access to the power of God and the power structures of the church, just like everybody else. It's a beautiful thing because the world is looking at the church today and asking questions about, can we handle power? The church is... is, is, is has got eyes on her from people who have seen the church abuse power too often in the past and be on the side of power rather than on the side of God. And the question is, can we use power in the right way? That's a, that's a witness question. That's a question that I get asked repeatedly, weekly, in Oakland by people who don't want to have anything to do with the church. But when we are all citizens... When we, are, when we all share that privilege and authority, when we all share those rights in our community, it, the world sees that, and it's different. We become citizens together when we break down these walls. We become not only citizens of a, of a society, of a kingdom, but we also become, Paul says, members of the same household. We become family. How beautiful is that? When, when Bernard and I started calling each other brothers, you know, it, it, it was an immediate shift for his adult children to start calling me uncle. Immediately. And it wasn't even a little bit tongue-in-cheek. It wasn't even like, oh yeah, our white uncle Kyle, you know. It wasn't anything like that. Even though they might have been thinking it in the back of their mind. It was, but it was, but it, was, it was just like, oh, Uncle Kyle. Yeah, he's our uncle. And they didn't even need to explain it to anybody because we're family. And so what happens is when, 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 stuff, when stuff gets tragic in life, we're there for each other. So just this, just this June, uh, at the end of June, uh, Bernard's nephew, our nephew, was, was shot. And being family meant we're in the hospital all day into the night. Being family meant... I'm there with three other people when we decide to shut the machines off. Being family meant walking through that grief together as a family. Being at the funeral and at the interment and at the reception. Being family meant we're together through thick and thin. When you have that in the church, some of you know what that's like to have family here. And when you have that among people that the world would look at and say, no way you could be family. All right, you have the same parents? No, but we have the same father. And when the world can look at the church and say, wow, that is a family like I've never seen. I guarantee you they want to be a part of it. I guarantee you they'll want to be a part of it. 
And that is when the third thing happens. That Paul says happens to the church. He says you become a temple. He says you are being built into a temple. A place where God lives. You know where the temple was? The temple was that place that people went to to access God. To be in God's presence. Paul says, when, when there is peace, when those dividing walls of hostility are gone, when people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language are one kingdom, one family, become one temple, you become the people in greater and greater measure where the world knows they can come to access God. When we were just starting to merge tapestry the week before, the week before we had our launch service as a new church, we got an email from a friend of ours who said, you better, you better be watching out for an email from uh, the, the anchor of KTVU News, because I told him about what you're doing, and, and, and I, think, I think he's going to love it. And we're like, right, okay, well, thanks for, thanks for reaching out. <laughs> like, we're two little churches. I mean, honestly, 25 people in one church, 25 people in the other church. Yeah, the news wants to interview us. And the next day, we got an email from Dave Clark, the anchor of KTVU News, who said, I heard about what you're doing. It's amazing. I want to interview you. So we said, well, is this going to be like chopped up and edited? Because you know how they do churches sometimes. And they're like, no, we want to do it live. So we said, oh, great. We get to tell people about Jesus, and they can't even edit us out. So, okay, we're in. So Tuesday morning, before our launch service, we, we, we are live on TV in downtown Oakland telling people about Jesus and how he has made us one. So about 10 minutes after that, we get another email because someone was watching that interview and it was the editor in chief of the San Francisco Chronicle who had called his, his, one of his uh, chief reporters over to him and said, we got to write an article on this. And I kid you not, the Satur that Saturday, the Saturday before our launch service, a church was on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. And I got to tell you, if you don't know, that's not the typical story on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. And, and 175 people came to our launch service of these two little churches getting together. And no, not all of them stayed. But a few of them did. A woman who says... That describes herself as a pagan, comes just about every Sunday, still, from that article, has participated on ministry teams, is listening to sermons about the gospel every week, and is raising her hands in worship every week. We get, we get emails from, from people around the country who heard the story then that came out on, on NPR about Little Church Tapestry saying, we've been thinking and dreaming about doing the same kind of thing. This has given us courage to go ahead and at least try. And we haven't even been successful at it yet or anything like that. We haven't written a book. We just did it. And, and man, we're still really working hard at it. 
But before we had even had proof in the pudding, people are saying we have been dreaming about the same thing. We just needed a little oomph. And none of this comes back to, to glory on tapestry or on me or Pastor Bernard. It is all simply a, a, a fulfillment of a promise that Jesus made. He, he, a prayerful promise that Jesus made when he, he, when he prayed that we would be one. And then he said, when they are one, the world will know that you sent me, Father. And that you love them just as much as you love me. Friends, Jesus fulfills his promises. He has made our peace. May we have the awareness, the recognition, and the courage to live in alignment with the peace we already have. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of peace. You are a God of shalom. That you are not a God of division. We thank you that you have made us one with our brothers and sisters of every tribe, race, nation, and tongue. That you have made us one across all kinds of lines that the world says divide us. Jesus, we thank you that you gave your life to reconcile us to the Father. Even as we were walking away from you, even as sometimes now we walk away from you and your purposes for your church, you still have reconciled us to the Father and you still use us. Despite the fact that, that Tapestry and Ivan Rest and every other church around the country and the world messes up sometimes, you still see fit to use us for your glory, and to reconcile the world to yourself. Jesus, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to align the appearance of your church to the reality of your church, a reality that you died for. We praise you for that. And I thank you for this family here, this church here, who cares so deeply about your gospel and your mission in the world. Would you bless them with every spiritual blessing in Christ? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.